one of the things I'm I'm trying to do. See, this is this is the ir- irony of it, because also <laughs> when you try to do something that can be very much the ego appropriating this idea of mindfulness or whatever. And you don't want that either. But at this point, my level, uh, I guess you can say, um, I'm trying to approach music as a process as opposed to an outcome. Hello, fellow beings. Welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. That's crap loads of stuff you can read up on, on a history-making artist like Reza Bassi, including the episode notes here and the podcast. Please do read through. But what you probably won't find much literature on is his heart-centered realness, which I got to experience firsthand the time I finally got to meet him in person in London after over a decade of online correspondence. The graciousness with which he immediately put me on the guest list, the complete absence of any pretentiousness during the after-gig hang, where he spent a good hour talking like long-lost friends, even while the quintessential London promoter-slash-PR types whizzed around, trying to get him to talk to more appropriate candidates. We talked about funny cousins shooting selfies we couldn't seem to figure out, um, boxing being more than a blood sport of Miles Davis or something valuable in it, and promised to continue the conversation when the time was right. So, here we go. I don't know why, because I think we met in the UK once. Yeah, and I do live there part-time. London's still kind of my hometown. That's where I grew up. Right, I can tell by the accent. Uh, yeah, th- about that. <laughs> Me and my accent, it's a bit of a hodgepodge. Quite yeah. hybrid. I'd say my base accent probably comes from London. Yeah, you got me there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> We're all a bit, a bit of a hot spot, you know? Well, you sound pretty New York, though. Although I, I was reading up, you grew up in Southern California, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of people from New York think I have a down south kind of uh, accent or a, even a California accent, which is more the case. But I've been here for longer than I was in Los Angeles. So, you know, it's grown in different ways. It's expanded in different ways. So who knows? <laughs> I often wonder if uh, musicians are actually more susceptible to picking up and um, uh, implementing the different sounds they hear, even accents and the, the whole, you know, the vocabulary they pick up. Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I agree with you. I mean, we're just you know, more sensitive to the to the listening aspect, uh, the senses. I mean, like if you were blind, right? I mean, you would your ears would be probably a lot better than they are right now, right? I mean, same same with mine. <laughs> it's just all relative to what you do in life and and how you know how you move about in life. If you don't have eyes, I mean, if you're blind, then you're going to be listening a lot more carefully to to things, and we know that because we know. You know, blind people who who have great ears or they, their sense perceptions shift a little bit. Jesus, yeah. Have you worked with any any blind musicians? Uh, well, I, I knew a, I knew a guitar player. Um, you know, I I didn't know him well enough to make that judgment particularly, but I just 
you know, it's an it's an assumption, but yet it's it's an educated assumption because you know I've seen what documentaries or, or shows about people who are like that. So well, I'm I'm gonna use this opportunity to second your uh, suspicion because I, I work with a blind musician once a year at this residency I do in the Canary Islands. This phenomenal singer pianist called Fabiola Sokas, who in her in her home region, which is the Canary Islands, it's like a very very unique culture of its own, uh, is quite the star, uh, like a national award winner and stuff. And yeah. it, it actually is phenomenal the way she approaches sound, the way she approaches harmony. It's very interesting because this ensemble we play in kind of caters to very diverse levels because it has like a social work aspect to it as well. And she's uh, definitely one of the most advanced. It's crazy. Like while we grapple with our sheets and kind of figure out where to fit in, she's like already like ready to hit the stage. And in a manner which actually seems so much simpler, if you think about it. I sometimes wonder, how did we forget to approach music that way? Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, uh, we'll never know. <laughs> I mean, who knows? We might know. But I mean, if you were, you know, blind from the beginning, or at least from when you're young, uh, you know, I mean, by now we've used our e eyes and ears and everything sort of uh, in a similar fashion, you know, and it's it's a little bit more normalized. So if I went blind tomorrow, I don't know if my ears would actually develop even more. I don't know this stage of the game. Well, I'm pretty sure you don't need to be blind to be the brilliant musician you already are. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, definitely a lot of food for thought there. We all have limitations, you know, so that's if it's blind or if it's something else, there's something going on that's... Uh, that that makes life a little bit tough to to just run smoothly sometimes. You know what I mean? Especially nowadays. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I'm assuming you are in, in New York City, right? Yeah, we're in Harlem. Wow. How intense is it? Um, well, one of the nights there was there was something really large happening, uh, a protest, and I don't even know if it was a protest. It was just so many cops and so many people. Uh, right in front of our house, like one one 14th Street. So uh, that was, I mean, I saw it from my uh, window, which is kind of, you know, crazy. Uh, but it's very similar all over the world, uh, at least all over America right now, but even some parts of the world. And it's just an outrage with, with what's happening. You know, the power struggle between cops and and the way they treat uh, minorities generally, but really black, uh, African Americans or black people in general everywhere. India has a very similar problem, man. Uh, I don't know if it's the cops, but the people, a lot of people in India, um, and not to make a blanket statement, but I was just reading an article last night. If you're black in India, you've got a very similar issue, if not even worse than here in America. It's it's really... Oh, fuck yeah. It's, it's, it's nuts. Um, I remember the one time I was at a cafe and this, um, uh, an African girl was just struggling to uh, order her coffee for some reason because um, the barista wouldn't uh, quite get what she was saying. And I helped her out and we started chatting and her partner was a soccer player. And a lot of African soccer players go do a residency like a black right. stint uh, in India. So, you know, we got chatting. She was really nice and asked her how her experiences have been. It was very fucking embarrassing for me as someone oh, yeah. with South Asian roots. It was, uh, I would hang my head in shame. And it made no sense because here I am in Europe, always standing up for rights for, you know, people of color. 
And then I find out what's happening in like the largest country of people of color. And it's like, it is like complete cognitive dissonance. Like it makes no sense. Yeah, a, yeah, it's amazing to me how India is one of the most spiritual lands on earth, you know, in terms of yoga and meditation, all that. And, uh, and all that that comes with that. But yet... It can also be the the most trite, superficial place on earth. Really ironic to me. Uh, you know, things we hear that come out of India or even, I mean, Pakistan too. I mean, to me, I, I, you know, that's another political ramification. I see those both as one. I don't see India and Pakistan separate. Uh, I, I know a lot, a lot of people might, but, you know, <laughs> no, I don't. Not me. Yeah, exactly. And I completely share your dilemma. It's, um, it's a lot to wrap your head around. And technically speaking, like my family's been removed for almost three generations now anyway. So my parents are first generation Indians. They came to India as refugees, as, as you know, toddlers, really. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, which is why I spent the first six years of my life traveling in different places of the world, because they were just traveling doctors, you know, getting their start capital happening, working in different places. And eventually went and settled in India, and a few years later I left. So uh, they're Indian citizens, but as far as my ancestry is concerned, technically I'd be, you know, Bangladeshi. I don't even know what Indian means at this point. Right, right, right. <clears throat> and then Bangladesh is part of Pakistan, so, you know, where does that, you know, I mean, it's, it's just interesting how it's really one land. And then, you know, you can... I mean, if you really stretch it, you can expand that to the whole entire earth. We're just human, right? I mean... See, that to me sounds like a solution. At least progress to it's the same. Right, right, right. I mean, unfortunately, there, there, there are a lot of issues that, that uh, separate us. Religion is one obvious one, but uh, and, and, and the belief systems that come with each religion. But, um, but you know, politics, which includes greed and power structures and it's very complicated to actually consider this whole earth as one unless you're a very enlightened type of spiritual being or you know if you have at least that kind of mentality which you know i think a lot of musicians do and a lot of artists in fact yeah that's the great thing about about art you know uh what it can teach people but unfortunately that other side is so skewed and warped and large at this point that we're looking at, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years before people start making that paradigm shift. Do we have a thousand years to spare, though, until we get there? <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's an, you know, that's an entirely other issue. So I wasn't attempting to open the whole climate change can of worms, but uh, I, was, I was really wondering, like, assuming the climate change, you know, even keeps up with that. Exactly. And uh, what does... Uh, pandemic, this virus is really exposing is how vulnerable we all are. I agree with you. So people have been blowing off climate change for a long time. It's not a belief system, really, climate change. You know, it is what it is. It is, you know, true. And we all try and do our little part. None of us are going to solve it just by ourselves. But, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. No worries. But uh, <clears throat> uh, I get a frog in my throat when I think about these things. But <laughs> oh yeah, intimately familiar with our frog. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but you know, so this just shows us that a virus can shut down the entire world. What do you think climate change can do? Mm. Um, I feel like I don't really want to think about it at this point. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, no point to, not to go there too much. So these are just basic surface level. Just to clarify, when I say I feel like I don't want to go there, it doesn't mean it's not a recommendation. I mean, we all need to go there at some point, and uh, oh, no, I'm right. hoping we, we, we all will in, in good time. You have to be overwhelmed by it all day long. I mean, that's not... You know, worrying is a good instigator towards uh, the process. But I mean, if you sit around and worry all day, you're not going to actually get to the process. So true, man. Um, you struck my interest there when you said music and how it can lead to, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, enlightenment. How has your journey been in, in, in this regard? How would you say music gave you that facility to reach that point of looking beyond lines and boundaries and concepts and boxes? Well, that's a that's a very deep topic, man. And uh, I got time. It's an ongoing process, man. It's um, you know, I see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I have to be honest with you. Uh, the the rub of being a a musician as a pro, you know, uh, either a jazz musician in my case, or what have you. Uh, the the pressure of performance and the pressure of making the living and, you know, the business aspect of it, the media aspect of it, you need to be sort of in the media to be able to get your stuff out there. All that stuff um, really kind of uh, deflates the spiritual side for me. And that's what I've been really grappling with for many, many years. And I, uh, you know, it's interesting we're talking about this because this uh, COVID thing, you know, we've all had to stay home and, and, it's making me think, wow, man, there's a, there's a lot of space to think now. It's sort of like without without this forcible sitting at home business and not playing gigs, uh, I was constantly on this role, this sort of adventure that didn't really allow me to sit back and say, what is all this for? I have asked myself those questions many times. I do all the time. But, <clears throat> you know, when you have a gig next week, you kind of blow that question off and like, oh, OK, well, let me just get through this next tour or or this next record. I really out of practice. You know, I really got to do all this um, or I have to make that phone call or I have to, you know, whatever. So now there's none of that because, you know, there's no tours happening. I can't be calling people up and asking for, you know, um, concerts and all that stuff. At this point, they'll, you know, it's almost laughable. Um, you know, all, all my, my six or seven tours have been canceled into uh, December. Um, I'm sorry to hear, man. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people are doing, getting, you know, they're they're going through a lot more than this. So I'm not really, you know, uh, you know, the government is helping us a little bit here for a few months more. So it's all okay right now for Kieran and I, my, my wife. And but I guess what I'm trying to say is the idea that to have music as a spiritual means, I mean. You know, okay, I think Coltrane might have gotten there. <laughs> you know, I think there's a few, yeah, Keith Jarrett, there's a few people who might, and I'm just speaking for them. I don't even know if that's really completely true. But uh, for me, it's sort of like this, this, this balancing of all this other stuff really, like I said, diminishes this, this spiritual aspect. So the only time I feel really spiritual is when I'm kind of just sitting home and letting the stuff go and practice, just not even, I, I, I say that practicing, but it's not practicing. It's just emoting. It's just sort of letting the music happen. And that, that only lasts for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes, you know, and I get into it. Then I get tired of, of, of my own playing. So that's another obstacle. See, the professionality of an artist, the creativity of an artist also gets in your way. And a lot of the stuff is based on ego. And, you know, I have a strong one. I think most of us do, and we don't even realize it. Wow, this 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 is so good, man. 
I find it extremely inspiring to hear you talk this way, an artist of your caliber speaking so vulnerably. And I'm not just saying that to make this podcast sound good. I'm also not surprised because I hear this in your music. I genuinely do. Wow. Um, I definitely do. And then I'm not sure if you always do, because I know I've been there myself, that you don't always necessarily hear what your music says yourself. Cause, Absolutely. Um, yeah. You're both. In my own experiences, I've written songs 20 years back, which I'm beginning to understand now. If there's one thing I'm increasingly convinced of, that the source of the music comes from someplace way bigger than our egoistic existence. That being said and done, though, I've also started to notice that the ego, like which has always been made out to be this devil, I mean, not everything it does is evil. You know, someone like you who's worked his ass off to get to where he is technically and intellectually. That hard work is also very evident to hear in your music. There's so much deep thought and work, not just thought. It's hard to find fool for that kind of work, that kind of grind, although I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of that work, without some support from the ego too, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I mean, so look, I mean, as I get older, these questions are arising and, and, and sustaining themselves a little longer in, in my sort of head or my body or where, you know, my gut or wherever you want. Whereas before it was sort of like, yeah, it is what it is, but now I'm sort of calling it out. I'm thinking to myself, okay, wait a minute. Am I, you know, is this ego? It's, it's, you know, it comes down to one word, man. It's, it comes down to awareness. If you can really be sort of on top of this awareness button in yourself and not just sort of become a sheep for society, because that's so easy, especially these days with the social media. You read all kinds of stuff. You read about yourself. You read about you know, other people. Uh, you're comparing yourself. You know, these are, all th these are all things that are pulling us the wrong direction. I hate to say it because I'm a victim of that for sure. But I think awareness of just the nuances, the subtleties of your brain, which is really the ego telling you you should do this you should do that you should have played this it, it sort of all comes into the fold you know and it's a matter of just i guess i guess you can say separating yourself a little bit from that position and once again that that cliched word paradigm shift i think the paradigm shift within yourself is very important and not to keep talking about that but one of the things I'm I'm trying to do. See, this is this is the ir irony of it, because also when you try to do something, that can be very much the ego appropriating this idea of mindfulness or whatever, and you don't want that either. But at this point, my level, uh, I guess you can say, um, I'm trying to approach music as a process as opposed to an outcome. Um, Beautiful. And that's that's the hardest thing is basically getting away from myself. It's so weird, man. <laughs> I hear you, brother. I hear you totally. I mean, you're literally taking the words out of my mouth here. But keep going. Keep going. Well, I mean, we all think of ourselves as, as our thoughts in our brain. And man, it's just so not true. It's so the opposite. I mean, there's that whole argument of free will. You know, I, I don't want to get into that because I don't know much about it. But how much free will do we actually have? I believe in free will myself, but there's people who argue that you don't really have a whole lot of free will at all. That's a philosophical, existential uh, debate that we won't deal with. But the idea is I, I take from that and I realize, you know what, maybe uh, there's something to that. You know, every everything I'm doing in, in life, I get up and I do this, I do that. How much am I really aware of? Or am I just going? Is it just because, okay... You know, my, my identity is Reza Bassi and, you know, 
I went here, I went to this school, I, I played with this person, I've got a record out, you know, I've got this and that. I just question all that stuff. I think it's, it's a good thing to separate from that once in a while, if not, you know, as much as you can. So in other words, when I play guitar now, I really try to um, become aware of the process of playing rather than what can I play? How many things can I do? What chord changes are those? What, you know, all the things that we grew up studying and we constantly used our brain to function as sort of this scholastic kind of way of thinking about music and jazz. And now it's trying to get to the process, which gets to the expression very quickly. That is amazing. Something that, like that. All of, that <laughs> resonates so deeply with me, man. I mean, I'm pretty euphoric now listening to you speak like that. I'm not just saying that. One of the mantras I've found very useful was a really, really old quote by Quincy Jones. And he said this back in the 80s where, you know, teams like these were almost kind of taboo. Forgive me if I'm not quoting you completely correctly, but I believe he said, get your chops together for the divine to come through. That is a definitely a beautiful quote, energized with the, the same ideas that, that we're talking here about. Of course, what is divine is another layer of, of this. <laughs> I, I guess, essentially, if you pull away all the scriptures and, and, and the dogma that come with them and just point yourself in that one direction, everybody, if they don't get caught up into that, is moving towards the same light, you know, hopefully. <laughs> That's a big statement right there. But uh, It doesn't seem like a big statement at all. In fact, I feel like the whole music industry, and in, in a way, it's not just our egos we've fallen victims to as artists, but also the music industry and uh, the sheep they've always relentlessly tried to make us to be. And that light has been completely forgotten and neglected by the music industry. Tori Amos once said, you hear the word music industry, you assume it has anything to do with music. And then once you're part of it, you realize that is a very debatable uh, question. My point being that light's been neglected for so long, I don't think we're getting too woo-woo at all addressing it. Especially, you know, since we do share that common South Asian background, like South Asian classical music has always kind of, to the best of my knowledge, seen it the other way around. They've always started off with the premise that, you know, you want to do music as a spiritual path. And in order to serve that light, you want to get into that disciplined lifestyle so you make sure that light is well served. You want to be a, of service to that light. When I first moved to Europe to study music, I have a, like a somewhat similar academic background. I was in college for 10 years uh, and I bear the scars for it. <laughs> I felt so lost because I was like, where is that part of music education being addressed here? Which brings me to how I discovered you. I don't know if you remember how we met, but it was MySpace. Oh, wow. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, dude, oh, I'm serious. <laughs> what was that? Oh, my. Yeah, we go back that long. I was in college studying jazz in a very European white environment of jazz academia. And uh, on the side, I was doing these clandestine sessions with my guitar, trying to figure out if I could hear some of the more Eastern inflected melodies in my head and if I could kind of strike a balance. And I had some recordings up on, on my MySpace site. And you commented, still remember, you said, wow, you sound wonderful. And what you probably don't know is I spent the next five minutes dancing around my kitchen when I read that. 
Because, uh, like, literally a couple of weeks back, I discovered your music. This was when um, Downbeat had just started talking about you. And there was that quote from Pat Metini about how you're, like, the guitar player to watch out from. Yeah, but yeah I mean, he, he, he did say some really nice things. He sent me a nice uh, email. Go go ahead. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I just don't want to get the wrong words out there. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. There are no what? wrong words on this podcast, man. But, yeah. Discovering, discovering you, though, you and your music, and I, and I need you to know this, has been an extremely healing experience for me because at the time I was suffering from severe cultural schizophrenia because on one hand I was like in this world of European jazz academia and the way jazz is taught in Europe is a little different to the US as well it's almost studied as American classical music and it, it can be quite dogmatic at times and on the other hand I had this background of having grown up with a lot of Indian classical music uh, my mother's a dancer and, uh, you know, I, I studied some Indian music while I was uh, during my time in India. And I was really grappling so hard to find some common ground of these worlds not being so different after all. At the time, there were a lot of like, in inverted commas, like world fusion, Indian fusion kind of things happening. But a lot of that was just very informative stages. And personally, Without being mean or anything, I've never been a fan of what's going on under that label. Uh, for the most part, me neither. Yeah, because it's yeah, it was yeah, it's just one culture appropriating the other, from my perspective. Yeah. And then I heard you, and it was exactly what I'd been waiting to hear, like all twenty years of my life till then, or twenty-one or twenty-two. I can't quite remember. You, you remember what record or what music? Bizarre. Oh, bizarre. Oh, okay. That late. Yeah. Okay. Because I did one called Snake Charmer, believe it or not. So I know that's a funny title, but it's referring more to the Kundalini meditation. Oh. But anyway, um, uh, at the time, I probably didn't, you know, realize that. But, um, you know, uh, that what came before Bazaar, the second record from, from that band, basically, is, is Bazaar. I'm definitely going to go check Snake Charmer out right after we finish this. Yeah, I don't even know if it's, it. it's up on anything for free, but I can always send you something because that's... Please do, please do, because I guess I noticed like a lot. Not all of your music is available everywhere. I mean, I still have the CDs I bought back in the day when people bought CDs. Coming back though, it really was an extremely healing experience for me because for the first time I could see someone who's actually gone into the depth of what music is from you know at a level almost cellular where it's not about concepts anymore. And you learned rules and you broke them at a level and depth so legit. It was really elevating well that <clears throat> that's great I, I i appreciate that because that's that was kind of my goal i mean it's a strange thing because i'm on the fence with this i don't even know what where my opinion lies but i feel like sometimes if you study too much uh of a thing uh, a good thing like indian classical music uh, either north or south uh or if you study too much even you know jazz or whatever i i think that may I, I don't know. I don't know if this is true, but I, I wonder if that limits your ability sometimes to to add your own uh, ideas, you know, or, or bring out your own personality. <clears throat> and, that resonates with me. Yeah, I don't. I mean, like I said, I don't. I know. I don't know. I would never say don't study anything. I mean, you know, like obviously that's not what I'm saying, but to the point that you know, I, I would want to sound like a sitar player or something like that. Uh, if I yeah. if I studied sitar and brought it to my instrument and and worked out all the phrases, I never wanted to really do that because I didn't want to appropriate 
that sound so much, uh, especially on an instrument like the guitar, which is it's, it's not the same. It's just not the same can of worms. So um, it was a matter of just listening to a lot of stuff, asking a few questions here and there, maybe going to a, a clinic workshop, um, you know, talking to other Indian musicians, uh, Indian American musicians, Pakistani, and sort of just grappling with all that and sort of, I guess, trusting that intuitive part of me that knows what music is, you know, um, instead of that brain part of me that probably would serve as a limitation. The heart and the whole body has got a lot of um, personality and, uh, as much as the brain does, you know, and the brain thinks that, you know, it's the thing that's doing all the work, but it's it's not. <laughs> so we know the gut has a lot of influence on our, our entire body. In, oh, yeah. So, that, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know if, if that was kind of vague the way I was saying it, but I'm also trying to think about it myself. No, not vague at all, man. Quite au contraire. Not, not vague in the least. That makes so much sense to me. So many important points there. Number one, not not getting to a point where you're studying something for the sake of studying that, because that you know, runs the risk of appropriating the same. And just remembering the brain is just one part of the entire ecosystem. There's also the heart, there's the gut. There's so much information in there that's so valuable, at least for me as a musician and, and an artist. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, 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 not at all. Please, you're the guest. Uh, and that's, of course, not saying that is black, black or white. I mean, you can study something with the mind and the heart. Like, I mean, most Indian classical musicians are very beautiful in the way they play their instruments. And they're studying, you know, they're studying very deeply at the same time. So I believe in that for sure. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of homework in different areas. But I think like Charlie, I guess Charlie Parker said, you know, learn your instrument and then forget it. And I think if you just work off of that, you think some of the magic in terms of trying to create a, a sound of your own to some degree without doing the ego, add, let's just say adding to the vernacular. That's what I'm interested in mostly. Um, it's not like, you know, my sound, Rez Abbas, more like, well, if I sound like everybody else, then I'm not adding anything to this to the music. With my upbringing, I have an opportunity to uh, delve into all these things sort of through the DNA, you know, you too. We were all brought up with the uh, brown people around us, and, you know, I was brought up in America. So um, all that serves, serves the music. I have a memory of you which I found very inspiring in a different context. I remember watching an interview of yours. Hopefully, I'll be able to cycle back to how that's relevant to what you just said. This was when, you know, independent interviewers and podcasts were, were just about starting to hit off. And this was an interview you did on YouTube with a very random music journalist, no one well known, who clearly wasn't necessarily very familiar with the jazz vernacular as, as such uh, outside of venue. Uh, where yeah. she asked you, wow, your music, it sounds a lot like Led Zeppelin. Um, oh, yeah, you, that was a long time ago, man. That was a very long time ago. The reason I addressed this, though, that the part I found most inspiring is how respectful you were when you answered. A lot of jazz musicians have no clue how to react to a situation like that wherein someone, a music journalist, comes up to them and says something they've been programmed to think as inappropriate or ignorant or whatever, you know, for lack of a better term, which is I'm not what I'm calling her, but to just respect. And I remember your answer was, I don't want to take that away from you. And then you went on to elaborate more deeper connections. And I want to say that, for me, immediately set you apart, uh, like a class apart from so many 
musicians who've fallen prey to the dogmatic structures of the genres they're supposed to belong to. What would you say has been the the driving force behind that? Can you contextualize it even more, like the, the driving force behind... Behind the openness, behind your ability to so naturally and organically respect someone else's perspective without judging them. I was just caught up on the Led Zeppelin thing. I was thinking about Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a funny interview. Yeah, that's funny. But um, yeah. so, are you saying like how how is it that I sort of have been influenced by groups like that? And no, and no, 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 quite the contrary. Most jazz musicians I know, at, especially at the time, this was when internet wasn't that big and people could get away with being a lot more nasty. And jazz musicians have had a reputation of being oh, a little oh. arrogant, they're a little snobbish. Right. But you were really kind and open and just very cool about it and you didn't seem insulted for ha having someone say your music sounds like Led Zeppelin. I get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I thought you were saying, but there was no sort of deep answer to that other than uh, maybe there's a section of the music that she heard that does is influenced by Led Zeppelin. I mean, you know, I did grow up <clears throat> on rock and roll. I think part of it is because I'm a guitar player. If I was a, a saxophone player, maybe not. Maybe I would have have a little bit more of uh, a funky attitude, but I don't even see why. What the what the I like how you say funky attitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, I I don't know what the purpose of that attitude would be. I mean, like, look. I mean, here's one one thing a lot of journalists do. Okay, and this is I'm not into this part of it. It's not her, but it was. It's just in general. Mm -hmm. They'll take like like you know a minute of of a tune, and then they'll write about that, or they'll remember that in your conversation, and. It's like, man, that was just a minute of my of the whole thing. Like you're gonna, like sometimes you see reviews, and they're talking about this one section of a tune on a 60 minute record, and they're making making it sound as if, as if the record is influenced by that one whatever that one thing was influenced by. So if it was Led Zeppelin, well, they, yeah, Reza Bosch is influenced by Led Zeppelin. This record is influenced by Led Zeppelin. You know, oh, and yeah. that, that's when I feel like. It's really taken out of context, and it's unfortunate. But in that circumstance, I think, you know, that was only one of the questions. So she was excited about that. And you know what? I would have to say I am influenced by Led Zeppelin. I mean, awesome. you know, I mean, I'm influenced by rock and roll. I mean, I definitely don't live under a rock. How could you? No pun intended. But how, how, do you, how are you not influenced by 70s rock and roll, 60s, 70s rock and roll, Beatles? You know, then then Led Zeppelin, then someone like, you know, like a band like Van Halen or something. How do you grow up in this environment and not hear any of that stuff? Because the fact of the matter is, once you hear that stuff, you're influenced by it. You, know, you don't have to buy all records and sit around and listen for 10 hours a day. So I, I see nothing wrong with that. Um, but when you're writing it journalistically in, 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 in a review that's only like, you know, 100 words or something, then it's a drag. But if it's if it's a broad stroke in, in in a larger interview, that's that's fine. There's so much to learn from what you just said, man. And also, I think the point I'm trying to kind of approach with what I just said and asked you is, um, it was a very apparent reflection of how broad-minded you genuinely are as a human being and as a musician. Uh, how you've done a fantastic job of not falling prey to dogmatic systems of yeah. looking at music 
And I was wondering, would you say your upbringing, the kaleidoscope of cultures you grew up amidst, may facilitate that broad-mindedness? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a reflection of this, uh, you know, dual identity, multicultural upbringing. I mean, you know, I, I didn't face a lot of racism when I was younger, and I, I guess I'm lucky for that because, you know, I could have even, I mean, growing up in the early 80s, you know, or late late 70s, early 80s in Los Angeles um, as a brown guy, you know, I mean, I, I could have, but and especially sort of this, <clears throat> what, what people thought was, you know, we're going through tensions with Iran and all that stuff. You know, I, I was called a few things and, and that's it. But it, it's like it never bugged me. I definitely felt like I was American. But having uh, many relatives that still come from Pakistan back and forth, in, in, along with my parents, they sort of carried that, their traditions uh, or my original traditions along with them. So uh, I was very influenced uh, by that. Uh, by being surrounded by them. What, if they were singing a song, you know, there it was. If they were listening to some, some Bollywood movie, you know, there it was. I was listening to it. So, um, you know, I was aware of, of this dual cultural uh, aspect. But most of my friends were American, whether it was Chinese-American, you know, uh, white guy, black guy, you know, whatever. You know, they were uh, they were all American, and we, we surfed. We did all kinds of – we went motorcycle riding. So – you know, listen to Led Zeppelin and Rush. <laughs> so it was a very American upbringing. But I think the idea that I had both these areas to work off of, uh, like at home, it would be a totally different thing than when I went outside. So that is not usually the case for everybody. So I think I think that that helped me keep a, a diverse space in my mind and like a, open to diversity kind of philosophy. Beautiful. When did jazz happen? Um, well, it's kind of it's kind of a weird story, but um, I had a friend that was well, he was barely a friend at the time, but um, one year older than me, and he was playing rock, and I was playing rock when I was fourteen or so, fifteen, and I didn't really discover jazz until I met him at a gas station. It was really weird. I, I, we were both pumping gas, and I was like, "Oh, hey, you know, Lon, what, what's up? You know, and, and I haven't seen you for a while." And he was. Oh yeah, pretty good. I'm 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 getting into jazz and classical music. I said, "Wow, what is that? Like, what do you like? What do you mean? What happened to, you know, Rush and all these other bands and these garage bands? You know, like, the, the, you know, we were all in garage bands playing at parties. It's like, aren't aren't you in that anymore? And so he was like, "No, I'm I'm going to prepare to you know go to USC, University of Southern California, and uh, get into their program." And I think he was 16, I was 15, or no, I was 16, he was 17. So because we were both driving. Um, and, you know, the strange thing is, uh, you know, I had this sort of uh, competition thing back then, which, which we all try and shed away after a while, but we all seem to have it. <laughs> it's the ego. Uh, and um, just the fact that he was studying this stuff, I figured, you know what, I'm going to look into that. I said, can we get together? And we got together, and the first thing he showed me was what his teacher was showing him, with, which was uh, uh, from the Omni book, uh, Opera Va from Charlie Parker. And, uh-huh. you know, and, and he said, this is what I'm working on. He played it, and it sounded really goofy to me. You know, that, that happens to be one of the more goofy tunes that Charlie Parker wrote in my ears anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's great. I mean, I still love it, but... 
I don't blame myself at 15 or 16 years old to think that was goofy. <laughs> no, no, I don't think anyone needs to feel the need to blame themselves for yeah, yeah. Know, feeling what they do when they hear music. Yeah, I mean, something like Blues for Alice, that doesn't sound goofy to me at all. You know? So it went from there to, to another friend who took me to see, because he knew I was into Eddie Van Halen, he took me to see Alan Holsworth when I was 16. And oh, so, wow. yeah, so... And then this other guy, Lon, the, one of my best friends, uh, he's no longer with us, but um, he uh, he also took me to see Ella Fitzgerald in the past when I was 16. So, wow. you know, yeah, so you're talking about diversity. There's, there's a lot of diversity within jazz itself right there. Uh, I know, right? Know, it's, um, it's actually the original world music, so to speak, which in itself is a weird genre in itself. Exactly. But, you know, so I discovered jazz sort of, full-blown like you know uh all aspects of it because if you if you think about joe pass and and then you think about alan holsworth it's like they can both be considered jazz musicians i mean i know holsworth is you know treading on some other things but if you want to put them in that spectrum they're they're like polar opposites of the same uh, similar world yeah i mean very polar opposites but if you want to really make that stretch but it was very different than what I had been listening to beforehand. So it was just a night and day. And then I just, I quit my band. I started practicing all day long then when I was 16. That's what helped my parents put me through college because uh, they said, boy, I mean, if you could sit around and practice six hours a day and you quit your band and you're not partying anymore, you must be serious about it. Wow. That's a really uplifting story. So Opera was officially the first standard you attempted to play? Yeah. First jazz tune. I don't know if I actually played it, <laughs> but I know it's I did. It's a pretty heavy tune. It's a pretty yeah. heavy head. I mean, I, I did eventually, and I played the solo, because I went to the same teacher eventually. So, But that no, that day I didn't play it. I probably played like Blue Bossa or something like that before that. But I'm assuming that even as a rock guitar player at the time, you were pretty technically adept then. Yeah, I was, I was fluid. My chops were good. I used to play Eruption at parties. You know, wow. When, yeah, we would go through our Rolling Stones, our uh, Rush tunes. You know, we we had we went through all the gamut, and then I would have my feature of uh, playing Eruption. So I did that. That was you know 15, 16 years old. But then, like I said, that same year I discovered jazz, and that all that other stuff was over with for a while. I became a jazz snob big time. I know the feeling intimately that that face. Will you please take us through that first jam session with Oprah Bob? to, let's say, Manhattan College of Music? What happened in between? Well, a lot happened in between. I mean, I went to USC, uh, Southern California, and there was a guitar program there, which was exceptional, and I've never seen anything like it uh, up to this day. I mean, the, the teacher I had, well, he passed away, unfortunately, too, was uh, Paul LaRose, and he, he went to school with Matheny and Jocko in Miami, and he sort of had that kind of inclination with jazz, which was this kind of open harmonic sensibility and yeah it was just beautiful uh studying with him for a couple of years also a, a gentleman who's still with us uh, joe diorio was was part of that later became part of that uh, guitar department so uh between those two guys i got a lot but then i felt like i wasn't playing enough i was just really practicing 
you know, anywhere from six to 10 hours, you know, at a, at a stretch. But it was sort of like, where am I going with this? You know, I mean, there's nothing to do with this. You know, I play with a few guitar players. That's about it. And, uh, and a rhythm section once in a blue moon at the school. So um, th- there's a gentleman named Terry Plumeri. He's a great bass player and, um, uh, 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 and composer. And he was friends with, with um, John Abercrombie. And he played, we played a few gigs and he said, wow, you know, you really sound uh, like you got a New York thing happening. Like, you know, John Abercrombie. I said, uh, I, yeah, wow. I, think I, I think I have heard of John Abercrombie and I barely knew he was playing. Because I was really into Jim Hall at that time, so uh, and they still am. But um, so you know, John Abercrombie, he, he kind of said, he kind of said, you know, you should hook up with him and, and move to New York. <laughs> I was like, wow. So uh, between he, he and, and Joe DiOrio also said, Rez, you should move to New York. Between those two guys and the fact that I was feeling kind of like like I wasn't improving because I wasn't playing with anybody, uh, I took a year. I took I think a semester off. Um, and sat around and really was kind of depressed and didn't do anything. And, uh, and then that was when I made my decision to move to Manhattan School of Music, which was a great decision because now suddenly I'm playing with a lot of people, and it was sort of the opposite of what I was doing at USC. You know, I wasn't just practicing all day. I was actually communicating skills, and yeah, that's the nutshell of the story. Wow, that's beautiful. Would you say John Abercrombie uh, has been a, a strong influence in your playing? I ask because I have a soft corner for him. I'm going to get into a story in a bit. Yes and no. I mean, you know, because the Jim Hall influence, I've been influenced by, you know, all the people who who sort of taken his pointers and, 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 and gone in their direction, which is Abercrombie, Matheny, uh, Bill Frizzell, certainly, and uh, John, John oh, Scott. I love those guys. Yeah, John Scofield and, and McGoodrick. It's strange that they're all white. <laughs> I just realized that oh. once. Yeah. Oh, I just realized that too. Never actually thought about it. It's just kind of beautiful, right? The fact that music never actually of, gets to think about it. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't see color in music, honestly. I just, you know, uh, I mean, I'm also very influenced by Wes Montgomery and George Benson, you know, and... Uh, and then there's uh, people like Matheny Ro- too, right? Sorry, I keep interrupting you. Sorry about the latency, man. No, no as is Matheny. And, and I studied with a guy named Rodney Jones, who who is very much from that school. And that helped in certain avenues also with my playing, you know. But I definitely veered towards, you know, a, a Jim Hall approach. And so Abercrombie was, was influential. I studied with him two or three lessons, and he was influential in many ways. Um, I think I sort of, with all these guys, I sort of um, stopped listening to them many years ago because I wanted to find my own sort of way. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe only recently have I gone back to a couple records and listened back and said, you know, what was about this record that I really loved? And, and boom, there it was. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. But for 20 years, I probably haven't really, really listened to any of these guys. Beautiful, man. Um, I had the opportunity to study with... John Abercrombie for a week. He was doing a week workshop at college. And what a lovely man. Amazing. Um, I know, right? Like the, the way I met him, uh, I, I was just walking downtown. This is a small town down south in Germany called Freiburg, which is where I studied. And um, see John Abercrombie walking across the street. And I'm like, mm. hey, you're John Abercrombie. He, and I'm not exaggerating. He takes a second, looks up in, into the sky, like he has to process that and looks back. Yeah, you're right. I am. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> That's, no, he's uh, he's got, had an amazing 
sense of humor, man. Oh my god. Oh yeah. yeah. So subtle, so subtle. Yeah, and I mean definitely. And the reason why I said yes and no to his influence is because there are different gradations of influence that I get from people. Coltrane, Keith Jarrett, Jim Hall. Those are my like three huge probably say Miles Davis too, but those three are really my huge influencers in jazz, at least they're just general music. And then there's another level, which is people like Abercrombie and, and Frizzell and all these guys who have their thing also. But uh, it's more of how much did I get in, like, deeply into it, you know? At which point during this journey with the jazz world, at which point did you start exploring the South Asian side to your music? Well, there's a brief story with that. Uh, you know, I've always liked what sort of came out of my parents' television when they were watching those South Asian movies or whatnot. And I always recognized that as something I needed to look into, but I was so involved with rock and, and then jazz, those kind of overrode that area. But one one day, um, there, was a, there was a house party that we got invited to, very close to my house, like we could have walked there. And Indian friends of my parents, and I walk in, and I was 18 years old, as I recall, and uh, very naive, and... There was sitting down Zakir Hussain and and Shiv Kumar Sharma. Wow! Uh, and, yeah, straight and, to the top, huh? Exactly. And uh, yeah, tell me about it. Oh my God! Uh, uh, and so, and I didn't know who these guys were. I was just like, oh hi, you know, how are you? And we were, you know, eating a little bit. So then they performed, and and then I realized, oh my God, you know, like, you know, I mean, when you're 18, you're really. Uh, uh, um, you know, uh, enamored by technique, you know, I mean, you really are. I mean, we all are still, but when you're young, you're like, oh, my God, what chops, right? And so Zakir started playing. I was like, oh, my God, what? who is this guy? You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. I thought Holsworth, you know, I thought like Van Hill and Holsworth were, were, you know, what they still are, of course. But uh, it, it's just, uh, it was just amazing. So, and, and Shiv Kumar Sharma, amazing. So I started just talking to, to, to Zakir afterwards, very nice. And, and then later on, I realized who that was, of course, who both of them were. Uh, and then I saw them both several times afterwards. But uh, that was my initial jolt into, into Indian classical music. And from there, I <clears throat> studied with a, a gentleman who um, studied with, uh, I think, Ravi Shankar, Hari Hadarao in Pasadena. So I started going to his house and just to try and understand some of the rhythmical cycles and aspects of the rhythms. And But he would talk about some other things also with Indian music. And uh, that lasted for a few months on and off. It was kind of that thing that just directed me into um, Indian classical music, those two experiences. You know, this runs the risk of sounding like a slightly stereotypical question, but how Deeply, would you say the rhythmic aspect to it has influenced you overall? Well, I don't think that's stereotypical. I mean, I think as a jazz musician, um, most jazz musicians who have studied Indian music have studied the, the rhythm aspect. Uh, hmm. I don't think many have actually studied the ragas and whatnot. It has definitely influenced me. Now, I'm not one of these guys, you know, who who sit around clapping all day long and you know, mm. work highs and, you know, there are a few of those, <laughs> you know, um, I, I think that's amazing. I, I guess I'm too lazy for that. I, I don't know. There's so many other things to do in life that, uh, it, like, I'm happy with a few. You're not lazy, man. 
No, but I'm, I'm happy with the, like, I mean, I, I could, I could push myself more into that channel and really get more into it and probably get more out of it. But I tend to just be happy with a few sort of rhythm of the compositions that I can work out and that's it. Like, I don't need the whole book of ideas in my head. I kind of wish I did, but that's just not me, I guess. It's also like dedicating your life to the Indian school of rhythm is almost like a life project anyway. It's like a full-time job. But I ask with a very specific question, Mangas. I've noticed how, and I'm going to have to try and figure out a way to say this without sounding like a dick. I've noticed how you've focused more on the organic side of the Indian rhythmic culture. Because Indian classical music, there's also like a class system happening there. Like most of the focus Indian rhythms have enjoyed have been the more complex mathematical sides to it. Exceptions prove the rule, of course. But there's also a very grounded, raw, tribal side to Indian rhythms too, which doesn't really get talked about a lot. And to be fair, a lot of Indian musicians, in my experience, have always tried to cash in on the complexities that their studies have familiarized them with by default. But I've noticed the way you've implemented that South Asian Indian rhythmic side has always stressed on the organic and not on the cerebral. Has that been a conscious decision or would you say it's just been something that happened with the flow? Um, I think both. There's that aspect I'm talking about where, you know, I call it lazy, but I, I know that's being rude to myself. <clears throat> it's not completely lazy or anything. It's just, you know, I could, I, I can definitely use some more lessons with this stuff, most definitely in conical, you know, um, the South Indian rhythm aspect. Because I have friends that do get into it, and they're like guitarists and pianists, and they seem to know a lot more than me about specific things. But I think you're right. I think you, you're you on something, that there's something organic to not actually delving heavily into it. Like I said, I'm on the fence. I don't know which one's right or wrong or whatever. But there's definitely something, the way I approach jazz is not to imitate a Coltrane or a Keith Jarrett or Jim Hall or who, who have you, um, you know, learn from the essence of what they're doing, not the derivative notes exactly. Uh, and there's a fine line between that because you really need to, to, to learn the notes too. But, you know, I, that's, that's the way I've approached jazz. You know, I feel like there are only 12 notes plus the octaves on our instrument, right? Uh, unless you're a microtonal person. But, you know, I mean, I'm a human being. Why can't I just come up with my own stuff? Just like everybody else did. You know, I know there's traditions to follow and all that. And, okay, I learned that. But now that I learned that, I definitely don't need to emphasize that learning. You know, I yep. can, that, that's the way I looked at Indian music, uh, or at least the rhythm as, aspect of the rhythmical. Um, because... I would be in many bands and they would have charts and I'd have to learn highs and all kinds of things. And I figured, well, if I learned it to perform it like I have, that's enough. Like, I don't have to memorize this stuff. I don't have to, you know, make 20 variations on it. Uh, you know, I've learned a handful of highs. I get what it feels like. I'm sure you do too by now. If I can sort of, for lack of a better word, not imitate, but stretch that that experience a little bit into my own by using the essences of all this stuff, then I think it might come out differently. I hear you. And it might not come out on the downbeat. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? That everything high is ends on a downbeat. Which is Absolutely. 
great, and it's it's like that's just an example. Though it's great that it ends on a downbeat, and uh, that's the rhythmical cadence that we're talking about that we hear. But what if I just took the idea of the the tihai and the whole uh, syncopation of it? That's what you know the tihais are based on. You can hear the syncopation within the phrase. What if I just focused on syncopation and not landing on the one, but yet took the essence of tihai? So those kinds of things are what I kind of work with, you know, uh, and if they don't come out, they don't come out. But if they come out well and I like it, it doesn't have to be a T-high, like legit. Yeah. I also see something, a certain strain of, or a certain approach happening in these past 20 years. Conical isn't as exotic anymore. You know, it's, it's almost becoming like a universal language. Most, most musicians who, uh, most jazz musicians anyway, know what Conical is. Absolutely. Um, and it's very interesting how there's already a bit of a, like a vaguely marked division between the two groups who are approaching it in very different ways. And this divide has existed in India as well the whole time, because I don't know how, how much uh, you've gone into it, but like Indian rhythmic philosophies do have a bit of a divide, like there's the folk rhythm, and then there uh, there's the the intellectualized, like the, the complex classical uh, rhythms um, and their approaches and maybe even roots, I don't know if roots are the right word, have been quite different. And just to clarify, I love both. Yeah, yeah. I, Indian folk rhythms have been such an underrated and such an underdog. And they actually are, are the roots on which classical music has been based on, at least partially. And they, they never really got enough credit. And also learning a Tihai or, I don't know, 21.8 or something yeah. is easier for a certain type and to learn on the surface without actually getting into the depth of it. I know that sounds extremely counterintuitive, maybe even judgy, and that's not where I'm getting at, though. But I just find it kind of repeating a certain paradigm of, okay, I'll just do my conical course now and learn to calculate this rhythm and just you know finish that course and leave calling myself a qualified conical musician or whatever it is you yeah. call after qualifying in in a course like that uh, it hurts me a little it hurts me how uh, it's being approached but i guess it's it's that approach to rhythm has been divided throughout time. I mean, I don't know how your experiences have been, um, probably way more diverse and way more intense, but I, I seem to run into two very definite types of musicians, one who approach rhythm from their gut and the other who approach from their head. And then there's my favorite who use both. And you fall under that category from my point of view. No, I hear you. Now, when you say folk music, uh uh, rhythms and stuff. Are you talking about Rajasthanian or, or like what what other folk? All over, man. Like um, that's exactly it. It's like an entire study of its own. I toured with uh, a gentleman called Tonga Bose who used to be uh, used to play with Ravi Shankar as well. Oh, yeah. And for a year in this project, he called Tal Tantra. It's you, you, I was I was just guesting on it for a bit. I was a little out of place, to be honest, with the entire approach. But one of the things I really loved about what he was trying to do was revive some of these folk rhythms. So he actually went into these like obscure Bengali villages and found like a dholki player 
So Tolkien, you can only learn from that family he came from because it was literally dying out. And he was about to give up playing this Tolkien because he couldn't afford to feed his family anymore playing it. So he was going to go switch professions to ironing clothes or something. So he actually went and got him out of there and went on tour with him all over the world. He played at the bowl, man, like uh, the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, yeah. He managed, he took him from there and uh, played, uh, going to play the Hollywood Bowl. And that's just one example of one obscure village in one state in India. And each of these villages all over the subcontinent have their own traditions. And none of them are being preserved and are dying out. Yeah, yeah, that's the, I, I see your point. So the, so the emphasis is on conical and Carnatic kind of music. and yeah. As strange as it sounds, if you take in the entire diversity of what the subcontinent has to offer, what we get to hear most of the time is actually just the surface really and almost almost to the point of becoming generic now Ooh, i think i might have made some enemies there yeah no 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 but uh, the thing is here here's the deal i mean uh, you know south indian uh, carnatic rhythms are definitely useful in, in many ways the system is uh, untouchable it's just an amazing system uh, uncom- oh, yeah. incomparable sorry and it's just an amazing system but it's different. The performance of it sometimes can overshadow uh, the depth of it, meaning that, like you said before, an immature Carnatic musician might just throw in all kinds of stuff, just like an immature jazz music, uh, drummer, you know, uh, throw exactly. in all kinds of their patterns because it's a mental game. So yeah. it becomes this, this, oh, check this out. Oh, yeah, check this out. I mean, I remember playing with someone that's kind of noted and we we were doing this you know uh, hybrid kind of project, and this guy would just come in like burning on every single thing that he would play, and the rest of the musicians were like, "Man, that's so inappropriate! What are you doing, man? Like, you got to listen to." Uh, we had arguments, you know, at rehearsals, and finally we made up. But I mean, no, it was so inappropriate that he would just come in with the. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we're so like, man, that was a bad. <laughs> we're, we're, like, we're like, dude, that's about it. <laughs> so, so I gotta ask you. I can't let you go without asking. How, how did you handle it? How did you manage to make that work? But could you make it work? Um, it took a lot of hair pulling. We we had to raise our voices a little bit when it just wasn't sinking in. I mean, we're trying very to be, Indian, but. We're, we're, but we have a, a timeline. We have to get this stuff together in, like, let's say, you know, five days. And, you know, every time this dude comes in, he's doing this. And it's sort of like the rest of us are looking at each other. Man, that's not, it's, it's in front of the beat. It's like, you know, and he's a great player. And so, uh, it, but what I'm trying to say, what I'm emphasizing here is that it's the training of having such amazing rhythms and not, to, not sort of taking a step back and saying, you know, how, how do I utilize these? So it, it helps the overall music. And that, that's what jazz musicians are really good at. And some Indian musicians are great at that too. But sometimes, because this, the rhythmical structures are so heavy and deep, they get lost into that, you know? Yeah. I think like one of the most intricate arts is not just about having good time, but also the art of figuring out, okay, here we are together. What? the time that we've all agreed upon and how quickly can I grab onto that agreed time between them to be agreed upon uh, together. Exactly. I, I feel like that's an issue that's only been 
addressed in the very recent past. Previously, in so many genres, I don't know how your, your experiences have been. Um, you've obviously worked with an entirely different league of musicians, but I've been witness to so many arguments on who's on time and who's not, <laughs> pun intended. I know. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how people forget. And this is a reflection of our entire world. It could circle back to what we started off this conversation with, this whole idea of objective time, like this objective truth. No, there is no objective truth. There is no objective correct time. It's about, you know, how how close can we come to agreeing upon where our collective time works? Yeah, it, well, exactly. Yeah, and I, well, I mean, just to harken back on that, the idea of this guy playing, it's not a blanket statement. Like, not everybody's like this in jazz or Indian music, obviously. it's a, It's not a comparative thing. But I find with jazz, the mentality sometimes is more from the percussionist aspect to shape the music. And yep. with sometimes, sometimes, not always, very rarely, you will find either in jazz drumming or Indian drumming that the person is just too caught up into the, the actual rhythmical foundation and, and doesn't shape the music. So it, it, it happens. And that was one experience that I had. <laughs> I got to get a little nerdy, though, because I, I don't want to let this opportunity go. Would you say this, what you just described, might have something to do with the fact that Indian music, most of it has been linear by nature, traditionally, whereas Western has been more vertical? Um, linear meaning like... Uh, uh, Monophonic? Um, oh, 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 I see. Yeah, melodic. Um, I would hesitate to even comment on that, because I, I haven't really thought of it that way, but... Uh, I think you're on to something. I mean, it could be because of that. There's, n there's not the harmonic content that's moving also, you know. Uh, although, you know, I think it's deeper than that. I think it has to do with these, just with the mentality. I mean, like I said, like Carnotic music, for instance, the rhythm, like you, you can play those rhythms all day long at home, you know, and, you know, and, and because they're so deep and they're so amazing that you can get stuck in that just like a jazz musician for instance uh not even a drummer but like a let's say a guitarist can get really so stuck into playing licks and scales that are incredible that when that person gets on the bandstand it's sort of not starting from the bottom up it's starting from sort of the middle okay here's me this is what i do and you know what i mean it's, it's like yeah, instead yeah. of starting from the bottom up and saying okay this is a fresh start Forget about who I am. What does the music ask for and what does it need? You know, and that, that's the best place, I think, in any kind of genre of music to start from. That's a very compassionate perspective. That I really love the way you put that. I think it mitigates any sort of other aspects, ego or not. And not all this stuff is ego, but it's, it's just training, you know? It's the way you're trained. And it happens in all genres. There's always somebody on the bandstand that is sort of trying to take over. But, I mean, rarely now, because uh, for me, because I don't play with people like that that much. But, you know, experientially, all throughout my years, I can point out many concerts like that. <laughs> so when you choose the musicians you work with, when you're working on your albums, what are you looking out for? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm of this school, if it's even a school, that uh, I like to play with different people. I don't, I'm not one of these guys who has the same band for 10, 20 years, you know. That's also a good thing. I mean, I have one group that did three records, so I guess that 
spanned over 10 years. And then I have another band that did two records. And then another band that had the, the two records. So I have had that. But I generally like to play with other people and get their input on my music. So I sort of hire different people for different projects. Uh, and the main thing I look for, I think, is um, spontaneity you know, in their playing, if I know they're playing, that they're not sort of playing the same way on every tune or or playing lines that I've heard everywhere else. You know, originality, those are a couple strong elements, uh, spontaneity and originality. And also probably, of course, they've got to be nice, <laughs> you know, reasonably good people. I'm not looking for a best friend, but I definitely don't want any attitudes. You know, that helps. Beautiful. I love that you mentioned that and you actually explicitly kind of addressed that issue. Yeah, Underrated, I find. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it helps if the person's a composer also. I, I like that. If they play as if they're a composer, put it that way. Mm -hmm. They don't have to have like a book of compositions necessarily, but if like drummers, for instance, I play with a lot of drummers who don't write music, but they play as if they're composing for what you wrote and it's uh, adding something compositionally to that so it, that's very uh, essential too that makes a lot of sense um yeah. what's it like working with um Kieran's band that's like a whole different vibe isn't it it is but it's taught me so much it's it's you know i can't even kind of even put into words how that's helped me her writing is is really special i mean it's uh her singing too but her writing is you know there are a lot of indian singers but they don't write you know, and, know yeah they sort of do their bollywood thing or or what have you do, you know guzzles and she used to do guzzles but now she's been writing for at least 12 years uh, 15 years her own stuff and and it's a pleasure to arrange that because i have to learn all her melodies so i ask her what raga it is in and what are the uh, emphasized notes or i can just hear that myself and from there she's very open for me to harmonize it in any way i want so Sometimes I come up with these really like felonious monk type of voicings, you know, uh, really interesting kind of crunchy sounds on the guitar. And she's like, oh, I love that. And I almost did it as a joke. And it's like, it surprises me. A lot of Indian musicians actually embrace sort of this dissonance that we in, in the West think is dissonance. Amazing. Yeah. And so I've done that many times and I've been surprised. What, you like that? You really like that? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like, wow. If this was a Western singer-songwriter, they would have said, oh, those are wrong notes. Those are weird notes. Those are, you know, whatever. So that, that's that's a beautiful thing. And, uh, and then she lets me scratch. Another thing great about her music now, in fact, in recent years, she's been influenced by West African music. Desert. Oh, wow. The Mir reason I react to that uh, the way I did, because that, that makes so much sense to me. That's actually part of what I was trying to get at when I was trying to address folk rhythms in India. There are a lot of parallels there to certain parts of African folk music, which I've been fascinated by. You know, just on a random tangential on the side. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt yeah, no, you. No, 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 absolutely not interrupting. Uh, yeah, that's been really great because I've worked with a few... Uh, uh, bands from there and uh, because she's used a couple of them on her records and she's played with them in some of their groups so that's been the guitar work has been definitely influential in the last 10-12 years on me and one thing that's so different from that guitar work than in jazz and she reminds me of this all the time is when I'm playing too many notes I'm not milking the notes as much I'm playing too many different chromatics you know these are things uh 
I do in jazz all the time when I'm playing over standards and everything. But she sort of reminds me all the time, you know, no, keep that sort of that rhythmical feel in there in, in whatever you're playing. And that specific sort of downbeatish rhythmical feel like like James Brown always, always used to talk about the downbeat. Right. Yeah. That, I hear you. that kind of funk foundation. So she reminds me of that. And then also uh, when I start ripping on my notes, <laughs> she's, she's like, oh, no, no, keep that keep that out of it. So. It's on, for the most part, 80% of her, her repertoire is like that. So it's a great lesson for me because otherwise I would just be playing like I play all the time, which is fine also, but this is expanding my playing in a different way. I gotta be honest with you, man. I mean, hashtag couple goals. I find it extremely inspiring how the two of you really enhance each other's music. I haven't known Kieran's music as long as I have yours, but I've, I've subscribed to both of your channels now. And in fact, I'd love to talk to her too sometime if she's a game. Her recent one, Seven Billion, came out about a year and a half ago, but I'm really happy with how those arrangements came out and and how, you know, the hybridity really stands out in that one, the way that we... Very much so. I also love what she's done on your music too, like what you do on her music and what she does on yours, but in a way where each of your individual artistic identities stand so strong and rooted it's super inspiring yeah it's unique that we're sort of this indo pack uh you know couple oh yeah there's that angle too see i hadn't even thought of that just What's that like did it ever well, get hairy no 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 i mean it's a you know our parents both were in partition you know they her dad was in, in in pakistan when he had to leave my dad was in india when he had to leave to go to pakistan so he's actually he was actually born near bombay so you know so it all the stuff crosses over but uh we recently did something for uh, a pakistani arts um uh platform called uh, salt salt arts and uh so they were kind of pushing that thing on it like you know for promotion they were saying uh this is a real Indo-Pak couple living, you know, we, we can all get along through arts, you know, that whole thing. So it just kind of stuck with me after that. I was like, yeah, that's true. You know, we are, you know, if you live in India or Pakistan, you may not think that Indian and Pakistani people can be married and create art. And yet it's heartbreaking and ridiculous, right? This whole divide, it's just so fucking ridiculous. And um, I mean, if a cheesy, yeah, absolutely. If a cheesy label like Indopak can at least, like, at least make good things happen. I'm, you know, I'll stand for it. What the heck? Yeah, yeah, I know. What are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm in a in a, you know, trio with Rudresh Mahantapa called Indopak Coalition. <laughs> oh shit! I totally forgot about that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but... Okay, no, but no, but that's uh, you know, at the at the first he was should we name it in the it's his name, but I mean, you know, I was like, yeah, what the hell, man? I mean. Indo-Pak coalition. It's, it's crazy. I had no idea. It's only uh, I was recently chatting to a, a Pakistani friend of mine. If you have a Pakistani passport, you basically can never in, enter India unless you're a diplomat or something. Well, I had that situation. Three of my tours got canceled in India because of that. No way. Yet three times I couldn't go. But now I have a certificate saying that um, I'm no longer connected to Pakistan. But wait, you're an American citizen, aren't you? Uh, yeah, but I was born in Pakistan, so my passport says born in Pakistan. So once that, uh, once that's there, 
Yeah, they say nope. Well, they didn't say nope. They just said you have to wait six months. And I'm like, well, I'm supposed to be there in a month and a half from now. And yeah, that kind of thing. So um, I have a, a paper that's a renunciation of my Pakistani citizenship, which is ironic because I'm not even a citizen of Pakistan, but that's the way it works. And so I haven't tried it yet, but that's what India said you need to have. And so I had some contacts in, in Pakistan, so I got it done, miraculously, I suppose, But because I don't even have a Pakistani passport. So they were saying, you need to show your Pakistani passport. I'm like, what? I don't have one. You know, I was four years old when we moved to America. So we haven't tried it, but there has been no reason really to go to India yet since I got that, which was about four years ago. I don't even have a reaction to that, man. Like, I'm literally, I don't even know what to say to that. It's just pretty ridiculous. It sort of happened after the, you know, that 9-11 of India, uh, the Taj Mahal got, you know, those guys started killing everybody. After that, really, this shit went down, you know. Wow, to actually block an American citizen on the basis of the date of, I thought, like a passport from a country that powerful kind of makes you exempt from that kind of discrimination, but I guess no. I was... They use their imaginations and then they believe it. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. I mean, this is besides the point, but I'm not a Muslim, so it, you know, it's, I mean, it doesn't say that on my passport. So again, if you're from Pakistan... You're a Muslim. That, that's another thing that they, they're, they're sort of putting on there. It's been dark the past few, like the recent developments, the political landscape. Um, I don't think I'm qualified enough to make an official like comment on it, but I do know that it feels very, very wrong to me. And I do hope that we can look forward to times where it'll be something we can laugh about. Yeah, and you've been doing okay. I mean, you're yeah, I, I see some things that you put up, and they sound great, man. I mean, I, I really dig them. You got oh, a lot, thanks, man. A lot of music in you. <laughs> Cheers, brother. It, it means a lot, and, I, and, and it really does. Um, you're one of the very few people whose opinions I hold in extremely high regard. So please know that means uh, I'm going to go do a little dance later on after this. Uh, oh. for that. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, yeah. Um, I've been trying to stay productive. Uh, it's been a little crazy since the COVID thing. Yeah. My label, who uh, based in the US, but in California actually, they're going through some major restructuring. So I'm waiting to see where that leads to. Since the COVID hit, uh, we we're all going through uncertain times regarding everything really and all my tours have obviously been cancelled as well japan yeah. indonesia us i was supposed to be in new york right now by the way oh um, yeah it's i mean this conversation with you is some source of solace and one of the first things i would have obviously done was um hit you up but at least we get to do this and um oh uh, yeah i have no idea when i'll be on stage again and uh, my tour plans nothing close to the kind of business yours is I am a little earnest and a little anxious about when I'll get to be on stage again. Financially, you're okay right now? Yeah, I've been, uh, I'm quite privileged, i got to say, because I have a teaching gig with the, with the city council here where I live. That's what keeps me in Germany. I'm glad this is where I got to do the whole lockdown thing because I have my studio spaces here where I can go work. And yeah. Also, my life in Germany is pretty isolated anyway, so I didn't have to go through any major lifestyle changes. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean about that part of it. Yeah? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's it's hard not to go to a restaurant and all that stuff. We've eaten here like two and a half months straight. I think, yes, two days ago, 
we got some Brussels sprouts from a, a place to go. But other than that, we've been cooking here. So, it's, yeah, it's tough. But as far as the musician's life, when I'm not on tour, I'm kind of just sitting at home all the time or, or you know, teaching once in a while. But they come to me, and, you know, it's or I do sessions. But but there's definitely something missing. I mean, I'm not saying I just sit here on my couch, but doing sessions alone is like a nice like, OK, you're out of the house, you're in someone else's place. You do you hang out with the musicians and then you come back home and you feel refreshed. There, there's not much of that right now, feeling refreshed, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, going to the park for a half an hour, that's refreshing, but it's not the same thing. You don't feel like you've accomplished anything. <laughs> I think the feeling of uncertainty, not really knowing exactly when this is going to be over, that's what, that's my biggest grapple. Yeah, I, I know. See, the, the hard part is like, even if they come up with some kind of vaccine or something, there's a, there are a lot of people who don't will not take that vaccine. Mm. So very true. It doesn't give the rest of us any confidence, you know. So is someone going to go to a jazz club if if you know twenty percent of thirty percent of the population is against vaccines? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, and there's also just so much information out there. It's very hard to make make like a decision on what to believe anymore. Exactly. That's another thing I'm grappling with. Exactly. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, very, very strange time. My parents are both doctors and they're in India. They're in the early 70s and they're working, man. So, yeah, so I don't even want to think about it. But yeah. it's also been interesting because the kind of measures a lot of people say are mandatory and should need to be put in place. They wouldn't even work in India in a, in a city that, in a country that densely populated. No way that's going to be. I know. Even if you wanted to. So, yeah. Um, again, a lot of cognitive dissonance happening. I have no idea what to believe anymore. So I'm just kind of letting go and taking every day at a time, one day at a time. Absolutely. That's exactly my uh, motto right now is just to take one day at a time. You know, it's, what else can you do? I can't think too much in the future. Probably a good lesson for us anyway. <laughs> Very much so. A good note to probably taper off this conversation you've given me a lot of time man very very appreciative absolutely thank um, you thank you this has been an extremely uplifting experience res i'm a fan officially by the way facebook says i'm one of your top fans so there you go uh, well, um, say so. <laughs> yeah i got a diamond logo and all that um yeah. very proud to be one and uh, yeah bro, you've had a very very deep impact on me as a musician and Mm -hmm. And as a third culture kid, and I want to thank you for taking so much time for me today. Thank you, and uh, I'm a big fan of yours as well. And we should, you know, think about doing. I know we talked about doing something uh, via computer or whatever, but if you ever want to revisit that, we'll talk. Oh, absolutely, man. Be sure I'm going to take you up on that someday. It's on my bucket list. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all good, man. I'm here. Awesome, brother. I'd I'd love to connect with you musically someday. I'm just a little intimidated, and I'm I'm gonna have to get my nerves together first. Oh, uh, no, I'm, I'm the last guy you're intimidated about, man. No, oh, let me tell you. Yeah, you see, you gotta realize that at the time I discovered your music, I was an extremely traumatized jazz student. So there's <laughs> there's that twenty year old traumatized jazz student who always threatens to rear its head. So I'm like forty one now, but I can't still get over that guy. <laughs> That's good. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. 
This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon. Just another voice out in.